activated or is it something that comes from outside? Is it faith from an outside power that brings that energy to the person who's in desperate need? Whether or not you view yourself as strong and capable, you have the potential to tap into these things and get in tune with these strengths, with these capabilities, whether you know it or not. Maybe there is something to this inner voice telling them the right way, and maybe some people have a better inner voice than others. And maybe there's just some dumb luck involved. It's possible that it's just one of those unexplained mysteries that we're never going to figure out. We all have that voice inside of us that we can listen to. And in extreme situations, it's always there to help you. Just listen to that voice. Be silent. It's there. It's there. Did Annette Earthkins manage to survive a deadly plane crash because of luck? A simple twist of fate? Or was there something inside her, a hidden reserve of willpower, perhaps? that gave her the means of staying alive? It's an interesting question. And there are some who believe the answer can be found by examining accounts of people who've also found a way of cheating death by using superhuman strength. Melbourne, Australia, August 1st, 2013. High above the city, 22-year-old Brad Guy is excited to make his first skydiving jump. The self-professed adrenaline junkie wants to push the limits. But he'll soon find that this is going to be the fall of his life. I was given the opportunity to choose which height I wanted to jump from, and I decided to go as high as possible, which was 15,000 feet. Very high. So my tandem instructor ran me through how it would feel to jump and what I need to do to ensure maximum safety. So he asked me if I had any final questions. <laughs> I think because I was so nervous, I made the joke saying, I hope my parachute opens. I remember when that rickety door of the aircraft opened and my instructor just edging me closer and closer, I was so terrified. And eventually my instructor said, three. Did you get off it like that? Jump and he pushed us out. I was moving so fast that I couldn't even comprehend. Just that four, five, seven seconds of free fall, it's totally euphoric. It's indescribable. It's kind of like magic. When a skydiver jumps out of a plane, they're accelerated by gravity at a rate of 32 feet per second per second. His speed would have been upwards over 100 miles per hour. Brad skydives an even greater thrill than he expected. But as he and his instructor plunge toward the ground, something goes horribly awry. There just was this point when, as we're falling, I was expecting a thrust of a parachute to come as per the safety instructions. And it never came. I felt a bit of a thrust uh, from a parachute, but it wasn't enough to slow us down. And that's when I noticed that the first parachute, it's been deployed, but it hasn't opened. And the emergency parachute got stuck in the original parachute. And because they're tangled together, we're not slowing down. We were tumbling towards the ground from 15,000 feet. I start freaking out. I'm really panicking. All I could really see was the earth getting closer and closer. 
and I knew I was going to hit the ground and die. The impact just smashed through my body. It really didn't feel like a fall. It almost felt like the earth just came and hit me. And when I hit the ground, I'm still strapped to my instructor. He's unconscious. Eventually, he did come to. We were just strapped to each other, screaming. I remember I was just hysterically crying, so confused, having no idea what had happened, partially still thinking that I was actually dead. Against all odds, the two men survive a fall of nearly three miles. Brad and his instructor are rushed to the hospital, where they both begin a long and miraculous recovery. Wow. My physical injuries, I broke my upper spine, fractured my lower spine, tore the ligaments in my neck, cracked and bruised ribs, mild head concussion. I had suspected that I was a quadriplegic. I was numb from the neck down. It took me a long time to feel my body again. You would think that after all these years and all the time I've had to reflect on it, that I would be able to look at the situation and seriously ask myself, was this luck or is it just all the odds being in my favor on a particular day? I don't know. I don't know. I would love to know. Sometimes when humans face extreme danger, the normal parts of our operating brain kind of get pushed aside and the sympathetic nervous system kicks in and can institute an adrenaline rush into the body, which can do some amazing things. It forces blood into the muscles and pumps them up and becomes hard to strengthen and protect your skeletal system and connective tissue. Was a surge of adrenaline responsible for protecting Brad's body from the extreme impact? Or was there something even more incredible going on? Perhaps I think you can tap into some amazing power. I truly do. It's there. You just have to have a reason to use it. Sometimes the difference between certain death and survival Who are you? isn't only due to adrenaline inside our bodies, but because Leave Devon Davion alone. We'll find our British a song. You'd never expect could keep you alive. Get in your bed. Southampton, England, April 10th, 1912. Get in your bed. Devon, take Davion downstairs. Y'all go get some breakfast. Sets out on our maiden voyage bound for New York. Built as unsinkable, the more than 46,000 ton vessel offers passengers the very latest transatlantic comfort. But what the men, women, and children on board don't know, and could never suspect, is that Titanic will not reach its intended destination. All right, go downstairs, eat your breakfast. The Titanic had 2,208 on board, uh, 891 of whom were crew. The Titanic was not just sort of the largest and most luxurious ocean liner of the time, but it was also seen as a kind of industrial miracle. It was the largest moving object right, come here. in human history. Hey, when all the boys come over, it was four days into its voyage, very late in the evening, about 20 minutes before midnight. The lookout spotted a broiler iceberg in its path. Iceberg, get ahead, sir! Iceberg, get ahead, sir. 
and unfortunately the ship was going too fast. They tried to turn the ship, but the iceberg struck along the starboard bow, bashing in the riveted steel plates that comprised the Titanic's hull. The Titanic is proclaimed unsinkable because it had 16 watertight compartments, except only the first forward four compartments at the bow and four compartments at the stern were truly watertight. And this was the fatal flaw because the iceberg breached more than the first four compartments and the order was given to mount the lifeboats. It's endlessly repeated that there weren't enough lifeboats in the Titanic. And strictly speaking, it's true. Every passenger and every crew member had a different moment when they began to move from complacency to concern and finally to panic. As panic spreads across the decks of the Titanic, male passengers scramble to place their wives and children on lifeboats. Many unfortunate souls choose to take their chances by jumping overboard into the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. They didn't live long. That is, with the remarkable exception of one man, Charles Jockin, the ship's chief baker. Charles Jockin was asleep in his bunk when the Titanic hit the iceberg, and where his quarters were, were a part of the ship that felt the collision quite significantly, so he sat up with a jolt and realised that there had been a fairly serious collision for the ship, and he went up on deck to see. When he heard that the order for lifeboats had been given, he returned to his cabin and poured himself a tumbler full of liquor, and he drank a half tumbler full. Then he went back up on deck and helped to supervise the loading of lifeboats. He helped load lifeboat 10. After that lifeboat was loaded, he went back to his cabin and had another nip or two so that he was really quite well lit as it got later in the night. At about 2.10, passengers reported hearing a sickening roar. That was the bulkheads giving way under this incredible stress from the incoming ocean. Jockin himself climbed onto the stern railing, not far from the flagpole, and as the ship sank, he rode it down like an elevator. The water temperature was between minus one and minus two Celsius, or about 28 Fahrenheit, which is below freezing. But it about 2.30 a.m., so 10 minutes. After the ship disappeared, the cries for help had finally stopped. So we would say survival time in that water was about 10 minutes for most passengers and crew. Jock paddled around for a while and eventually uh, came across the overturned collapsible lifeboat and at least 28 men found refuge there and survived on the back. Jockin says he paddled up to the lifeboat and was rebuffed. They said, no more man, you'll sink us. Of the 2,208 passengers and crew who sailed upon the Titanic on its maiden voyage, only 712 survived. 1,496 yeah. perished. Among the survivors was Charles Jockin, who, at 
after floating in 28 degree water for nearly two hours, managed to stay alive. But how? He should have. I was hot. legs amputated he, there should have been severe damage and there wasn't jockin reached new york in relative good health he went back to his career at sea not long afterwards and when they asked him later what do you think it was that allowed you to survive he said that the alcohol warmed his blood and kept him alive but no medical science shows that this is the case in fact it's believed that alcohol actually makes it worse if you're encountering a situation of hypothermia. Experts say that when you drink alcohol, something called vasodilation occurs and the blood goes to your skin, which is why your face turns red if you drink a lot. So that when you actually are plunged into cold water, you're more susceptible to hypothermia. You actually... The six-year-old is now utterly and completely lost and alone wandering the rugged wilderness. A professional search and rescue team from the county came out. And one of the first things that they did was they started by driving the roads and calling out his name. And they alerted local pilots to start flying over there. This was a scary situation for us. The next morning, my grandmother received a phone call that he had been found, and that was great news. It was a huge sense of relief. My six-year-old logic was that if I could just get home and get into bed, then I wouldn't be in trouble and everything would be okay. So when the sun came up, I was leaving that forested area, that plateau, and looking down below me was a valley with some houses in it. I got down the, the hill and there's a girl. And so she talked me into going into this house. And that's when I just totally fell asleep on the couch. When I woke up, there was a county sheriff there. So that officer drove me to my grandpa's house. And then eventually they brought my mom and my sister and brother over there all of a sudden. And so at that point, I kind of knew that, that I was home. In the days after his survival, Cody's journey through the Wallowa-Whitman National Forest back to civilization becomes headline news across the country. But the story raises more questions than answers. How did a young child endure frigid temperatures, hostile terrain, and a walk of nearly marathon distance? Cody was missing from early afternoon until 8 o'clock the next morning, about 15 or 16 hours. And somehow in that time period, he covered 18 miles over rugged terrain in an area he'd never been in at night. It just really amazes me that he had the conviction to keep heading in the correct direction, and somehow he knew that. By the time it got dark, I'd probably walked, I think, around three or four miles. And as a six-year-old, that probably was the furthest I'd ever walked in my life up to that point. And I had found a larger road, but then it got to a fork, and I had to make a decision. And I decided to go right, and I went down 
this other way for probably half a mile. And then something inside me said, this is not the right direction. It's more scary that way. And I don't know why. So I turned around. And once I made a decision to start walking, I don't really remember questioning it. An adult can sit there and think of all the fears, all the mistakes, all the bad things that can happen, where the child just knew he was in trouble and had to get out of it. But what if it's more than just a child's lack of self-consciousness that allowed Cody to make it home alive? What if there's a more supernatural explanation? For some reason, he knew that he was on the right trail. Is it because there is so many people in activity on that trail in the past that he's picking up on that energy? Whatever he's picking up, he trusts 